Good evening, church. It's good to see you guys. Hey, my name is Jay. Uh, if you are unfamiliar with our services at New Life Downtown, um, one thing we traditionally have done in the past pre-COVID is we read the scriptures uh, each week out loud from the stage. So we are going to bring that back starting tonight. Uh, so tonight's reading, the Old Testament reading, is found in Daniel 2, uh, verses 21 through 22. Uh, by the way, I will read this scripture and then there'll be a uh, call and response at the end that will be on the screen. God is the one who changes times and eras, who dethrones one king only to establish another, who grants wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those with insight. God is the one who uncovers what lies deeply hidden. He knows what hides in darkness. Light lives with him. The word of the Lord. The New Testament reading is found in Revelation 1, 1 through 3. A revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what, what must soon take place. Christ made it known by sending it through his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the witness of Jesus Christ, including all that John saw. Favored is the one who reads the word of this prophecy out loud, and favored is, are those who listen to it being read, and keep what is written in it, for the time is near. The word of the Lord. If you are able, please stand for the gospel reading found in Matthew sixteen fifteen through 18. He said, and what about you? Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Then Jesus replied, happy are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because no human has shown this to you. Rather, my Father who is in heaven has shown you. The gospel of the Lord. Praise be to our Lord Christ. Please remain standing with me as we pray tonight. Father, we come before you and we want to say thank you for revealing your son Jesus to us. And we are gathered here to say with Peter that Jesus, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And so during this time, as we open the scriptures, we pray that you would continue to make yourself known to us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. And all God's people said, amen. amen. You may be seated. It's great to see you tonight as we begin this new series through the book of Revelation entitled The Last Word. But we have a couple of announcements to make here really quick. First of all, uh, you might have seen uh, either last week during the service or on social media or in our email post that our lead pastor, Pastor Glenn Packiam, has a non-cancerous polyp on his vocal cord. Uh, so I want to continue to just ask you to continue to pray for him for strength as he rests his voice uh, and wisdom as he kind of figures out the right treatment and all of those kind of things moving forward. We hope that he'll be back preaching sooner rather than later. Second announcement is kids ministry will resume next Sunday. So nursery through fifth grade, we will have kids ministry. There will be limited space available. Uh, so you'll need to go online and pre-register. There'll be some more information coming out about that soon via email. Lastly, on August 30th, we're hoping to relaunch our meal groups for the fall. Now we're still trying to figure out how does this all work in the midst of COVID-19 and all of those things, but we're looking for people who are willing to gather other people 
together in the name of Jesus, either outside or online, socially distant spaces. If that's you, please email me tonight so that we can get started started on a process uh, to get all of that paperwork and all those things done in order to launch some new groups on August 30th. All right. So growing up, uh, I watched a lot of horror films, a lot of them. But honestly, the most terrifying movie that I ever saw was not a Stephen King adaptation. It wasn't Carrie. It wasn't Cujo. It wasn't Children of the Corn. It was a 1972 film that was shot in Iowa about the end of the world called A Thief in the Night. Anybody ever seen this film? Can you raise your hand if you're watching online, set up a bunch of likes? Okay, this was like the Left Behind movies before there were the Left Behind movies and books. But 1972, set in Iowa, it was a forerunner to this whole sort of movement of books about the end times or about the ends of this age. The movie and all the things that kind of grown up around it are loosely based on the book of Revelation and a variety of sort of other New Testament passages. And they have sort of marked in us a particular kind of perspective around this book. But that perspective actually comes up in the middle. If we think about the book of Revelation, if you've read that book before, it is filled with all kinds of startling images. You have images of a fiery lake and seven seals and seven bowls and things are smoking and there's cosmic battles and there's dragons and there's winged creatures. At times it feels like a guide to fantastic beasts and where to find them. It's like, what is going on in here? And if you read it, chances are you might have one of several emotions that kind of come up. There's times that we read it, because oftentimes because we have all these other things in our mind, that we read it and we're just afraid. It's like, what is this? And how did this make the Bible? I'm terrified right now. For others, we read it and we're like, I have no clue what this is saying. We're just confused. There's a bewilderment that comes over us and we sort of glaze over by the time we get to chapter five and chapter six. We're going, I, I, I'm, I don't know. And that can even lead to this place of just feeling inadequate. Well, clearly I don't know how to read the Bible. Clearly I'm not smart enough. Clearly I don't have the right education. Clearly I don't have what it takes to understand this. Or it leads to my more common response. I just get angry. <laughs> It's like, what is this? What is happening here? And all those emotions get amplified for us if we're convinced that this is all supposed to be about current events that are happening right now and somehow in here are the keys that we need to survive all of this. So all the emotions get heightened. And so generally what happens is that in the church we get two general responses to this book. We either like totally obsess over it. They're like, I need to crack the code. I don't know what the code is. I don't know what the key is. It's probably somewhere in Daniel. And if I can just figure that out, then I can unlock this and all of it will make sense to me. So we obsess and we're trying to figure out, we got charts and graphs and maps and we're just fascinated by it. Or the more common response is we just avoid it altogether. And we read it about as much as we read the Old Testament. 
We just sort of forget that it's there at the end. It's true that when we open this book, the images are startling. The genre that this book is written in is really, really unfamiliar to us. And it's hard to understand. But for thousands of years, the book of Revelation has actually been a source of great confidence and great hope for the church. It has been a source of confidence about God at work in the world and a source of hope that we know how this all works out in the end. And our hope throughout this entire series as we walk through this book is that that would happen for you. That in this season that we find ourselves in now, that in walking through this book and reading through this book and preaching through this book, that you would find confidence in Jesus and hope in God's intended future for us. That that would be the primary emotion that would begin to take over as we walk through this. Now, the book of Revelation was written in the second half of the first century. There's some people that think it was written in the late 60s, right after the death of Nero. There are other people that think it was written in the 90s after the death of another uh, Roman emperor named Domitian. It was written by a guy named John. And there's huge debates all throughout the church history about, well, which John is this? One of the most common sort of answer is that this is John the Apostle. This is John that followed Jesus. This is John, the disciple that Jesus loved. For others, like, no, 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 no. We think this is another John who's described in some other writings as an early church leader. We think he's the one that wrote it. And other people are like, no, no, no. It's a third John altogether. It's this John who is a seer. It's John of Patmos, this island that this person has this vision on. What we do know for sure is that John, the writer here, is a pastor. He has a pastor's heart for the church. He's a follower of Jesus, and he's a leader in the church. And what has happened to him because of his faith in Christ and because of his witness to God's kingdom, he's been imprisoned and exiled onto this island in the Aegean Sea off the coast of Turkey. So here he is, alone, exiled, imprisoned. He's experienced extreme dislocation, the loss of space, to some degree a loss of vocation. He's been separated from the people that he pastors. He's feeling the absence of community, the isolation from the people that he loves. He's now surrounded by silence. And I can imagine that during the long days, that there are moments of doubt. And as evening sets, that despair can set in. And I think if we think about that for a moment, we can relate to what John's experiencing. There's probably been a point at some point in the last five months where we felt great loss, where we've experienced isolation, where we've had some sort of doubt or despair creep in. And we start asking the questions, okay, God, what are you doing? 
God, where are you? What is happening right now? God, how did I end up in this place? How did we end up here? Where are my people? Why is this separation? Why this isolation? God, what are you doing in the middle of that? And right there on this island, isolated and alone and exiled and imprisoned, Jesus comes to John. In the midst of his doubt, in the midst of his despair, in the midst of his questions and his wondering, Jesus comes to John. And our prayer is that for each of us, that when we find ourselves in that moment, that Jesus comes to us. And Jesus hasn't stopped doing this. He didn't do it just one time for John. But as we look throughout the New Testament, we look throughout church history, Jesus continually shows up for his people in our lowest points, that we find Jesus there. Sometimes we don't see it until afterwards. We look back and we see how Jesus held us through that time. But Jesus shows up for John. And he gives John a vision and he tells John to write this vision down and to send it to seven churches in Asia Minor. These are seven churches that were often persecuted. If this is happening under the time of Nero, they were seriously persecuted. But churches that were always on the underside of power and to those who death for their faith was an ever-present reality, that they might be killed or exiled or imprisoned because of their faith in Jesus. And these are historic churches, not the only churches in the area. There's churches like Colossae that are not mentioned here, but seven in Hebrew represents whole or complete, which suggests that the, the choice of seven is about those seven churches, but also that this is meant for all churches, that this is meant for all of us. It's meant for the entire church throughout history and time. But the encouraging thing to me in this moment is that it was written for everyday people facing hard times. That the book was not written to this sort of special select group of people who have this special power to be able to understand everything that's written in it. Or it's not written to this group of academics or these people that know the key to all of the things, but instead it's written for everybody that it's written for them and it's written down for us. This book is for the church in crisis, for community in peril, for times of uncertainty. The book comes to us in that. And it's described initially in two fascinating ways. The book initially in the opening verses describes itself in two ways, as revelation or apocalypse and prophecy. As revelation or apocalypse and prophecy. Here's what it says. Uh, Revelation chapter one, verse one, a revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants what must soon take place. The Greek word underlining the word revelation there is where we get the word apocalypse. That's where that word comes from. So a revelation of Christ, that Christ made it known by sending it through his angel to his servant John, now down down to verse three. Favored is the one who reads the words of this prophecy out loud. And favored are those who listen to it being read and keep what is written in it for the time is 
near. So this first word, this idea of apocalypse or revelation, the word actually means to unveil or to uncover. The idea here is about making something fully known, about pulling back the curtain and helping us see. It actually had nothing to do with zombies. None whatsoever did we find any mention of that here. Instead, it's this idea that something is being shown. It was not actually meant to hide something, but to help us see something. And yet oftentimes the approaches to the book are like, all these things are hidden and you can't see them. Only special people can. No, no, the whole book is designed to show us something, to make something known, to help us see, to help us see what's happening differently, to help us see something more beautiful and more demanding than we can possibly imagine on our own. It's meant to spark our imagination about what God is doing in the world. And it uses this bizarre symbolic language to do so, which we'll get into throughout the series. But the first question we have to ask with this being a revelation is what are we meant to see? That's the first question we're gonna tackle tonight. What are we meant to see? With it being called prophecy, oftentimes we think that prophecy is about Holy Spirit-inspired fortune-telling. You know, that people, they don't have a crystal ball. Instead, they have the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit sort of gives them pictures into the future. That prophecy is about forecasting. But that's actually not the primary purpose of of prophecy in the scriptures. The primary purpose of prophecy is not prediction, but proclamation. That prophecy is about proclaiming something. It's about God speaking into a situation and calling the people that find themselves in that place to present action. And it does refer back to the past and it does look into the future and say, this is what will happen if these things are not heeded. But generally, prophecy is about the present. It's about the here and now and God speaking into those moments. And so as prophecy, we have to ask ourselves the question, what are we meant to hear and what are we invited to do? What are we meant to see and what are we meant to hear and do are the primary questions that we come into the book with. So what are we meant to see? What is this idea? There are actually four common approaches to this throughout church history. And we're going to get a little nerdy here just because I think it will help us. So there's four common approaches that people take to what are we supposed to see. The first approach is that we're supposed to see past events. That all of this symbolic imagery and these things are all related to things that have already happened. These are things that have been fulfilled in Jesus or maybe the fall of the temple in 70 AD, or maybe as late as the fall of the Roman Empire in the fifth century. But all that in Revelation has already happened. And so in that reading, it's really relevant to that immediate audience, to John and to the people that he's writing to. It has deep and impactful meaning and significance for those early Christians. So the strength of that approach really is the context. They're taking that historical situation seriously. But the weakness is is sometimes it sort of dismisses it then for contemporary application, and it de-emphasizes God's future plan. It's got some strengths and weaknesses in there. The second 
approach is that the book is meant to help us see future events, that it's meant to unveil future events. This is the most familiar approach, especially in the United States since the 1900s. This is the most approach that maybe most of us are familiar with. The idea here is that nothing in Revelation has happened yet, or it started happening maybe in 1948 or 2016. We keep changing the dates of when the start is going to be. And then that way it becomes relevant to us, maybe. It becomes particularly relevant to the people who are here now, but not so relevant to the people that it was originally addressed to. The strength of it is it emphasizes God's future work, but it ignores the context and the original audience. And it's subjective, it's, it's prone to highly subjective interpretation where all the dates and the people and the places and things get changed over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. And books get written and they get pulled off the shelf and it goes on from there. The third approach is that this is meant to show us a history of events, that an unfolding of history, that the book addresses a series of things. And so that specific passages are relevant to specific periods. For some, they just draw a straight line from the churches that are addressed all the way to Christ's return. This was a really popular approach for the early Protestants, those that were coming out from the Roman Catholic Church. They said, we are now in the time of Revelation 13 and the Pope is the Antichrist. They're like, and all the rest of the chapters are yet to come. For others, they see it as a repeating cycle of history. But what it helps with is it emphasizes God's at work in history, that God's at work, that he's doing something now. But again, it ignores the past and gets highly subjective. The fourth approach that people take is that the book just simply contains spiritual truths. It's not about specific events and it's not about specific people. It's just about spiritual ideas, principles, that all these images are just allegories, that there's a conflict between two kingdoms, light and dark, and that's always ongoing. The strength of that means it's relevant to everybody everywhere all the time. That's the nice part about it. But again, it ignores the historical context and it denies any historical fulfillment that things are, God's actually at work in history. So what are we gonna do? That's the big question. You're like, what are you gonna expect over the next, from now until uh, Thanksgiving is how long we're gonna be in this series. From now until Advent, what are we gonna do? The first thing is I'm gonna ask you to, to hit the reset button. Just Let's try as best we can to set aside everything we've ever heard about this book (laughs) and just look at it fresh from start to finish. Not this piece here and this piece here and this piece here mixed in with this verse from over here and this verse from over here and this verse here, but let's just look at it as a whole and start fresh anew and say, okay, what is the book saying? Okay? And the second thing is, it's my deep conviction that we have to start with the original context. I firmly believe that John and the original readers understood these visions, that they weren't sitting there in the midst of persecution and saying, God, why did you send us something that we don't understand? Why did you send us something that's not relevant for 2,000 more years? We're suffering now. 
that they understood what was happening. In fact, most of the symbols and images that are found in the book of Revelation are actually found in earlier texts. They're found in the rest of scripture. There are 404 verses in the book of Revelation. At least 300 times is the Old Testament alluded to. Never directly quoted, but alluded to. Another 218 times the New Testament is alluded to. 518 times in 404 verses, we're talking about books that have already been written. We're talking about things that people would have already been familiar with. See, all the images arise within their symbolic world and are meant to encourage churches that are already in tribulation. So we have to start there. And then moving forward from that place, what we're going to try to do is embrace the strengths of all of those approaches and try to avoid the weaknesses as best we can. We believe that God is at work in history, that God is at work here and now. We believe that a future victory is coming. And we believe that there are deep and profound theological truths that are revealed in this book that are important for all of us, for all Christians everywhere at all times. So we're going to hold on to those things, and then we're just going to go for it. Does that sound good? We can do that? Awesome. But here's what we're going to do most importantly. Most importantly, we want to see what John saw. Or more accurately, we want to see who John saw. The book opens with this phrase, a revelation of Jesus Christ. A revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, the, the original part in the, in the original language is a little ambiguous. So some translations that you're looking at might say a revelation from Jesus Christ. They might say a revelation about Jesus Christ. I think it's both. I think it's a revelation from Jesus, about Jesus, to his people, and then we're meant to see, as we open this book, is we're meant to see Jesus. And then we're meant to see everything through Jesus, to capture who Jesus is, and to see everything that's happening through the lens and filter of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That's what we're meant to see, is the person of Jesus Christ. Listen to what uh, John says about him a little bit later on in verse 5. He says, and from Jesus Christ. And then he just goes off. The faithful witness. The word there is martyr. The one who faithfully died for us. We want to see him. The firstborn from among the dead. The one who's been resurrected and whose path we will follow when he returns. And we are resurrected. The one who is the ruler of the kings of the earth. They all are subject to him, no matter how the election goes, to the one who loves us, that this is from the one who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood, who made us a kingdom priest to God and to his God and Father. To him be glory and power for, forever and always. It's supposed to bring us to worship like, oh yes, it's Jesus. 
and we worship him. And then he goes on. He says, look, he is coming. That there's a day coming when Jesus is going to come back and every eye will see him, including those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. This is so amen. And then he proclaims, I'm the alpha and the omega, says the Lord God, the one who was or who is and who was and is coming, the almighty one. This is who we're meant to see as we read this book. See, we live in a world right now where there is so much uncertainty. Every time we open social media or our favorite news program, there's new information and new policies and new opinions and new reports and new data and new this and new that and... And when we look at this book, we're reminded of the one who never changes. And we're reminded of who Jesus is. That Jesus is the origin, the climax, and the resolution of history. And as his people, we have nothing to fear. He is the origin, the climax, and the resolution of all history, of all of our lives. And we, as his people, have nothing to fear. He is with us, and he is at work in his worlds. All right, last question, we're gonna close. So if we're meant to see Jesus, what are we meant to hear, and what are we meant to do? Verse three says, favor is the one who reads the words of this prophecy out loud. And favor are those who listen to it being read and keep what is written in it for the time is near. Favored, blessed are those who read this out loud, who hear it, who listen to it, and who keep it. See, in this book, we're meant to hear the word of God and to keep it. The word keep there has a sense of like to guard or to watch over or to attend carefully to and has the implication of obedience, to pay close attention that we might live this out in our day, in our time, and in our lives. See, we cannot keep or obey a prediction. We cannot keep or obey a prediction, but we can hear a proclamation and be faithful to the one who makes it. We can hear the word of God and be faithful to the one who speaks by the spirit living inside of us. So what we're meant to do here is supposed to read this text that we might behold the face of Jesus, that we might hear the voice of Jesus, that we might be ushered into his presence, into his world, that we might be transformed by him and empowered by him to follow his way in this strange world that we live in. That's the point of the book. 
So I want to challenge you over the next several months, read it start to finish. And if you're bold, read it out loud and come up with different voices for the creatures that are involved. Let your imagination run wild. Read it with your kids. Have them act it out, but let them see Jesus at the center of it all. The lamb who was slain for the forgiveness of our sins and the one who will come again to conquer all evil in the world. And if the revelation just feels too much for you, if there's too much baggage, pick a gospel and read that out loud instead that we might see Jesus, that we might hear his voice and be faithful to him as he is faithful to us. As we come to this time in our service, normally at this point we would turn and come to the table and remember the faithfulness of Jesus and ask him to empower us to be faithful. But as it turns out, there's a global shortage of ready-to-eat communion elements. We all missed the memo to buy stock and bicycles and prepackaged communion in January, so they are still on back order. So those of you who are watching online at home, grab your communion elements and you can receive. The rest of you, I encourage you when you go home tonight, gather together with the people that are with you. Share communion together. Respond to the word that way. But tonight, we're gonna sing our response. We're going to respond in worship, the kind of worship that we see all throughout this book. And when people see Jesus and they hear his voice, the church has always responded by singing our praise. And we're gonna sing a song tonight called Broken Vessels. In the middle of it, we're gonna sing Apart from Amazing Grace. And in this song, we'll sing I can see you now. And I can see the love in your eyes. I once was blind, but now I see. So let's stand together tonight, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. As we set out for the next couple of months to read this book, and as we sing now, Help us to see, to see you clearly, to see the love that you have for us in your eyes. You are the faithful witness. You are the firstborn from among the dead. You are the one who loves us and you are the one who sets us free. Help us see.